Hi, Simon Andrews. I'm delighted to welcome you to Radio Fix. This is a new dimension of our weekly newsletter, Mobile Fix, the podcast where we go deeper on the subjects we cover in Fix. Today, I'm delighted to talk with an old friend of mine, Rory Sutherland. He and I worked together over 20 years ago, Ogilvy Direct, and there's no one smarter in the ad business than Rory, um, and we get into some of his smart thinking, some of his experience, and how he views the industry moving forward. I tracked Rory down in deepest Kent. We met at the Pig, just outside Canterbury, um, and um, enjoy the talk we have. Great. So I'm here with one of the top ad people in the world, but Rory Sutherland's gone beyond ads and is renowned thinker in behavioural economics with multi-million TED Talk views and talks all over the world. Um, we made a slip down to Canterbury to talk with um, Rory about what's happening in this world and how the behavioural economics work he does, which is a small description of it, how that fits with advertising. So this is our uh, Mobile Fix podcast. I'm Simon Andrews and uh, Rory, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. So most ad luminaries are defined by they've done a 30 second TV commercial or something like that. And you're also a bit different because we worked together 20 odd years ago, Ogilvy Direct. So you've come up through a different route into the advertising industry. Yeah, I still consider myself a copywriter at heart, and I still consider myself a direct marketer at heart as well. Okay. Um, But what had always occurred to me, and this was something very, very early on in my career, it was fairly obvious that direct marketers kind of knew more than they knew they knew. There was a lot of tacit knowledge there about human behaviour. For instance, I'll give you a classic thing which people under 40 will find baffling, but this is true. The phrase, for example, um, uh, please reply within uh, uh, 10 days. Right. That was at the bottom of every letter, that if you sent an offer to someone, you always made it time-restricted, or ostensibly so. To be honest, anybody who replied would have got the offer. But it was known that if you actually placed a certain sense of urgency behind an offer, you'd get a much higher response rate than if you said, feel free to take up this offer whenever you like. Now, that was an early behavioural insight from um, direct marketing. And there were lots of them, and good old direct marketing law taught direct copywriters quite a few of them. But we never fully codified it. And what was strange, I think, and this is, I suppose, the really weird thing, is that we had a media department and a targeting department, and we had a creative department. So there was the kind of what do you say department and the where do you say it and who do you say it department. But my view was that there was always scope for a third department, which asked kind of wider questions. Uh, For instance, uh, how do you price it? Would be an, it would be a, a classic example. You know, in other words, would this be better if you actually priced it as four equal payments over four months? What do you compare the price to? What's your comparative set? Because we all knew this in direct marketing. Okay, we all use those tricks like for less than a cost of a cup of coffee a yes. day. But those were good copywriting tricks, which good direct marketing copywriters knew to use. But there was never wider discussion of those things, despite the fact that if you looked at the effect they had on results, you saw they were disproportionately important. Years later, I persuaded my father to get Sky. And bear in mind, if you'd grown up where all TV was free except for the licence fee, the idea of paying sort of 17 or £20 a month for extra channels seemed deeply weird. And my father was hugely resistant. And I said, look, I'll pay for it. No, 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 it's still too expensive, he said. I said, I don't mind paying. I mean, you know, 
And then I finally fell back on the old trick. I said, well, it's not really £20 a month, is it? It's 65p a day. What's that effect? He said, well, what difference does that make? And I said, well, you spend £2 a day on newspapers. If you spend £2 a day on newspapers, it's not that crazy spending 65p to get another 200 channels of television. And strangely, he went, oh, I see what you mean. So even something which economists would consider as absolutely stable as price, the perception of price can be dramatically changed by context. If you frame a cost versus another cost, uh, for example, you can make an expensive thing seem cheap. I always give the example in my talks of Nespresso, which if you had to buy it in a jar like Nescafe, for an equivalent volume of caffeine, you'd be paying something like £40 a jar. And you'd look at that in the shops <laughs> next to Nescafe. And go, That's totally insane. I can't pay that. But of course, because it comes in a pod, and our frame of reference is Starbucks and Costa, rather than Nescafe, we don't feel we're being woefully extravagant uh, in popping a 40p Nespresso pod in the machine. I mean, I did an interesting calculation the other day, which fascinated me. I've always felt guilty buying expensive tea, because it seems a bit of a needless indulgence. You know, here are the PG tips, which are sort of 2p a cup, and I'm buying this Yunnan oolong, whatever it is, then I worked out, fascinating thing, if you make really expensive tea with tap water, it's cheaper than bottled water. Now, nobody feels guilty buying a bottle of Avian to take home on the train. So, should we necessarily feel guilty buying, you know, monkey-picked Darjeeling second flush and making it with tap water? No, I don't think we should. And so it's very, very interesting that in every case, uh, context has this huge effect on behaviour. But there was a creative department if you like, and there was a targeting department, but there wasn't a context department. Now, I wasn't suggesting for a second there should just be a context department, but it struck me that there were these variables in any piece of communication, how you presented a product, how you named a product, um, how you described the price, how you charge for it. Um, Whether you should put the price down or even up, by the way, which had an enormous effect on the economic outcome but which weren't being studied with anything like the same assiduousness as the headline on the poster or the targeting proposal. I think that's why I find it interesting because, you know, you can see now when you describe it like that, there's all these connections between what you've always done and what people like Claude Hopkins have been doing yeah. and, you know, Richard Taylor and Nudge. But you saw that. And a friend who used to work for GE, it's quite interesting, he was bonus on how much of his revenue came from products which have been launched in the last two years. And there also you could have a third of your money coming from new products. The trolls have fresh new income streams. And you think about the advertising industry, your take on yes. this is the only new product I can think of in the past 20 or 30 years. Because they're still making, okay, I'm making something, a 30-second commercial or an Instagram well, ad, the same product. It, it, it's fantastic you say this because the, the ad industry and the, the creative agencies and media agencies, particularly creative agencies, still behave as though we're paid on commission. We haven't been paid on commission for 25 years. Now, someone should have said, like the GE person, look, now we're paid by the hour, okay? The downside is we'll never get a huge check for doing not very much, i.e. running last year's advertising all over again, which was hugely lucrative when it happened, okay? But the good news here is we're no longer confined to solving problems for people who have a media budget. 
Because the problem, obviously, about being paid on commission was the only people worth talking to were the kind of standard media budget holding clients at large advertisers. Who'd worked out they wanted to run advertising. Who'd worked out they wanted to run advertising in advance. Now we can actually broaden our remit and create a whole load of new offerings. Because my argument is for every person who's got a problem in a media budget, there are 100 people who've got a problem and no media budget. And quite often those problems, I'm not talking about purely technical problems, but if human psychology is involved in their problem, which most of the time yeah. kind of is, okay, then behavioural science combined with creativity, in other words, that should be the staple of what an agency does, which is human insight plus yeah. a creative response to those insights, actually has, a, you know, now if you think about it, you can't imagine management consultancy narrowing itself. You know, it doesn't just wait for people with a consultancy <laughs> budget to emerge. It infiltrates every part of the business. Well, I think I saw Whereas you... We have this self-limiting definition, which is um, one of the things that really upsets me about it is you can't really work with smaller firms. Now, maybe in 1970 that didn't matter, but smaller firms now mean f firms that might be very big in six years' time. And, you know, in the first five years of Google, the first five years of Amazon, you know, quite often with tech firms, advertising is the last thing they do. So what you might call the psychological part of the equation or the wider marketing part of the equation is the last part to engage. I think that's a really good point. Because one of the things I think, if you look at why agencies you know, struggle, because they don't get paid properly, as you say, they've never been paid for the value they create. If you think about no. you know, Sterling Cooper and Don Draper and the Kodak Carousel, you know, they were getting paid handsomely for a great idea. And you talk about it as magic and alchemy in the book. And you also say um, that with your new business, you get people coming to ask questions they don't ask of agencies. So that's quite interesting that people with these problems don't see agencies as the way to go, but we'll see your nudge business as, you know, how do I solve this problem because there isn't a media budget for it. So we end up with clients who, you know, realistically, if you were behaving as I think most new business people do, which is essentially let's go down to Cannes and talk to a lot of people with big media budgets on the assumption that that's where we can add the most value, it strikes me as an entirely outdated assumption. Okay, you, first of all, you're talking to exactly the same people as every other bloody agency <laughs> in town. Secondly, you have this kind of self-limiting definition of what you're there to do because communications is only part of creative solve problem solving it's a very important part it's probably the best part in which to cut your teeth i wouldn't dispute that for a second but um what's fascinating is you when you think about it wpp doesn't really have an r d budget no ge does okay now here you have a company the size of wpp what everybody seems to have spent the last 20 years doing is saying, how can we do exactly what we did before 3% more efficiently than we used to do it? Now, at some point, in any case, you run up against, you know, there's a limit to how efficient you can be in a business such as ours, to be absolutely honest. There's a huge amount of iteration involved. There's a huge amount of random serendipity involved. Um, the idea that you can somehow generate fantastic ideas and solutions through process I believe in I believe in checklists. I don't really believe in process. You know, I think you okay. should. You know, um, because process is what you do when you want to produce the same thing time yes. and time again. Replicable. And uh, and also, if, if for a replicable product in a predictable world, process is great. There's a reason why evolution doesn't work that way, which is it has to deal with an unpredictable world, um, and it has to have the ability to do non-replicable things. It has to adapt. 
Now, isn't it weird that the entire ad industry has had this enormous pool of really special talent? And by the way, I mean, I've adored my time working there and the people I've worked with have been stimulating, fascinating, uh, truly remarkable. And no one said, who else can we sell this to? The assumption is that unless you already have a pre-existing large media budget, effectively, it's a bit like, as I said, an agency is a bit like having a general hospital, but you've got a sign over the door that says cosmetic surgery. <laughs> and it's a self-limiting belief. Because, all, I mean, it, it, it's also present, by the way, in ad agency people, in that they tend to think that if you solve a problem in a highly effective, imaginative, lucrative way, but you don't get an ad out of it, that you've somehow cheated. Well, I think in your new book, um, it's called Alchemy. Um, but you talk about this idea that yeah, agency people, people who have ideas are alchemists. They turn lead into gold. Yeah. That feels like a pretty good descriptor of what advertising at its best can do. And I love the fact you talked about the $300 million button, mm. where changing a button on a web page made a huge difference to actually conversion. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. Do Google it, because it's a wonderful story where uh, essentially asking people to register before they'd bought killed sales. Strangely, once people had bought, if you offer them the chance to register by simply adding a password, 95% um, of people, I think, went on to happily to register. Okay. Now, what's interesting is the amount of work you were asking them to do was very little, was actually no different. Typing in your name and address when you think it's a data collection exercise feels like a really frustrating pain in the arse. Typing in your name and address for the delivery of the product you've just bought feels like a very Good necessary task. Yeah. So asking people to register, even though you were saving them the trouble of writing, typing in their name and address, by framing it as this is the delivery address for your new fridge versus please register at our site, the pain experienced in that behaviour is completely different. And I find there are so many cases where something which is identical in objective terms can be inordinately different in perceptual terms. That's why I call it alchemy, because you can take the same thing and make it dismal or fabulous. And I think that's such a strong point. That, you know, looking from the media point of view, we have this conversation, the best way to double the effectiveness of your media spend because you've done a really good job, it's almost there, yes. it's actually halving the basket abandonment through the type of thing you're talking yeah. about. But those two people don't get to talk and you don't connect those things up. They're no. struggling uh, to make their media budget work harder <coughs> when they could be solving a different problem. And there may... <coughs> if you can't make the checkout process any easier, there may be a, a communication solution to it, by the way, which simply says, if you make people expect it to be difficult, they'll be less annoyed by it. So I, I was very interested in your, in, you know, if you go to TripAdvisor and all the reviews say the food's great but the service is terrible, when you get there, you're not particularly bothered by bad service because you've been led to expect it. Uh, there's an even more extreme case which I, I was given, which is Wong Key, the Chinese restaurant yes. in Chinatown, which made a brilliant living for 20 years out of being the rudest restaurant. Shouting at people. Shouting at people. If you ask for, if you ask for a knife and fork instead of chopsticks, you'd be on some <laughs> subject. A whole heap of abuse. And they basically tell you where to sit. They criticise your menu choices. But, of course, depending on uh, what the human frame of mind is, uh, the same thing can be a huge disadvantage and a disaster or something of a benefit. Yes. And it always fascinates me how many great advertising end lines are effectively a piece of alchemy because what they do is they turn a weakness into a strength. 
And there's a great phrase, since we're in Kent at the moment, actually not far from Canterbury, uh, Chaucer uses it about 14 times, I think, in the Canterbury Tales, which is to make a virtue of necessity. And what that is, is to take something which conventionally would be considered a bug and turn it into a feature. OK, now, the beautiful, most beautiful case probably of all time is we're number two, so we try harder, which is particularly if you remember the time at which that was produced. Yeah. We're number two in rent-a-cars, so we try harder. Now, at the time, being number two basically meant you weren't as good as the number one. You didn't have as many outlets. The chance that cars weren't available was higher. This was an America where big meant good, you know. Yeah. And we're number two in rental cars is a bad news story until you add four words, four alchemical words, so we try harder, whereby changing the story, you've turned something, a downside into a plus. And, you know, if you think about it, reassuringly expensive for Stella Artois, uh, good things come to those who wait for Guinness. Um, um, fresh cream cake's naughty but nice. Uh, you either love it or you hate it. You know, they're all a case where you take something which is a negative in a completely rational economic world, those things would be either neutral or negative. And you, by, by changing the narrative, you suddenly turn them into a benefit. And you think that now you're, you, you, you know, you've been a great advocate for this space, you know all the big thinkers in this space and quote them and you know, talk at your event at Nudgestock. You know, do you see this sort of spreading into the rest of the industry or does it seem to be remarkably immune to this new thinking? I mean, it's certainly a growing business. I mean, it's worth saying that Draft, um, uh, FCB, uh, as I said, a few agencies, a couple in Chicago, a few in San Francisco, uh, and a few completely standalone agencies have started, who are starting to do work in this field. And I think it's really important. I mean, my own instinct is I like it to be, I like to be part of an ad agency because the whole creative setting, it provides, apart from that, it provides you with many opportunities to practice your craft. Yeah. Because it's not always easy. The one thing I do say that's difficult about this, if you think about it, is that, uh, when you have a media budget, patently you need some creative work to fill the space and you also need to pay some media owners to transmit the message. OK, the problem with this is that which does make it difficult. It's very not difficult to add value. Very, very easy to add value. Extremely easy to find dangerous assumptions that people are making about human behaviour, which, if they're wrong, are very, very costly. But they simply seem logical. Um, but the one difficult thing is nobody's got a budget for solving a problem they didn't know they had. And that's that's the one area in which it helps to be part of a larger something else. I see. You talk about, you know, metrics and being measured against us and bad metrics lead to bad measurement, lead to bad behaviour. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I genuinely worry about business metrics because in some cases, I'm not even sure we should be using them at all. Now, if you think about what we tend to do when we decide to do some advertising. We say, okay, our, our strategy is X. The role of advertising within the strategy is to do Y. Therefore, we will design advertising that's explicitly designed to achieve Y, and we will evaluate its success exclusively on the basis of how well it achieves Y. Yeah. Okay. Now, in a completely predictable, kind of deterministic, uh, instrumental world, where the future was knowable uh, and where everything of value was measurable and quantifiable, 
that's a reasonable approach. It's a reasonable approach in engineering, for example. Yeah. You know, we need to solve this problem with drag at the end of the tail fin. Therefore, we will evaluate solutions by how far they reduce that drag. That's, you know, it's a good way to do lots of things. If you look at advertising, I'd argue that there's a huge reason to advertise, which is simply that being famous will lead to lots of unpredictable outcomes and they're vastly more likely to be positive than negative assuming you don't get involved in scandal or you don't get rumbled. So if you're an honest company producing a decent product, the reason to be famous is not because you know in, in advance how fame will benefit you or that you can ever measure it. It's simply that there's an enormous asymmetry going on there. So if you've got teenage kids, okay, I always use this example, and you say, why are you going out on Saturday night? The basic answer will be, I might get lucky. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And you'd say, well, how, how, now, how will you? Have you done a cost benefit analysis, right? You know, how do you plan to get lucky? Do you have a particular girl in mind? Or do you have a particular boy in mind? Or do you have a friendship group that you particularly want to inveigle your way into? And their answer, quite accurate, will be, I don't know. But what I do know is if I stay home, I won't get lucky. Now, I think. One way to approach advertising is simply in that way, which is that, okay, if you're famous, you're vastly more likely to be the recipient of positive good fortune than if you're obscure. People will bring you good ideas spontaneously. When your chief executive rings someone up or asks for a favour, they'll return the call. Uh, people will come and work for you for less money and you will get more talented people because they've heard of you. You know, in a B2B environment, trying to make advertising kind of quantifiable it's probably, you know, it's probably a particularly acute mistake, simply because you can't know in advance how fame will benefit you. What you can know to a reasonable degree of confidence is that the upside vastly outweighs the downside. But I get that, and I agree with that. But that's often used as the argument to push the old way of doing things. Let's spend a lot of money on mass market media, and don't worry about wastage. You know, is it being famous amongst the right people? back to your targeting point or has been generally famous you know and spend money on things which you know look like they're not the right people to talk I mean to. in some cases of course I mean I always found it very funny when my book came out because you know you could have sat down and had a really detailed report about you know detailed discussion about who do we promote it to it's a book about behavioral yeah. science it has particular relevance to marketers it has a wider relevance to a business audience and you could have you know, sat down, and if someone had suggested, why don't you try and get on the Chris Evans breakfast show? It's a ridiculous idea. On earth would Chris Evans yeah. want to interview someone? But because, essentially, the book was widely publicised, someone close to Chris Evans invited me onto the yeah. show. Chris liked the book and talked about it a lot. And bizarrely, for five days, I mean, this was extraordinary okay it was sort of number eight on amazon by which i mean it wow. was beating the highway code which is compulsory <laughs> okay it was beating the hungry little caterpillar you know i i think there was something like four cookery books and one novel uh and then i can't remember what the other two books that were selling better were but they were kind of the books you're never gonna, you're never going to beat um and the point about that was that fortune in a non-linear universe is often disproportionate. Yes. And maybe the argument is you publicise a book and you make a lot of noise about it, first of all, because uh, essentially you can't tell how you're going to get lucky in, in a non-linear world. 
you know, if I'm, I've talked to various people who are now billionaires who say I was basically working out of a garage and then this local news item appeared on the TV about me and seven other TV, you, you know that American yeah. thing where you get our local Fox affiliate, <laughs> you know, Channel 5, you know, whatever it is. You know, I always watch that. I love those yeah. channels in the morning. And literally this guy, actually one of them was the guy who, who runs Box.com and he was selling toilet paper out of his garage until some local news outlet thought the story was cute and it sort of just sp spread. Now, you can't you can't engineer those things in advance. All you can do is maximise the chances that they may happen. But didn't you earn the right or the chance for fame and being lucky by writing a really good book? And if you've got a great piece of creative work, no, no, no. the ad gets you know famous through the look from it. If you've got a poor piece of creative work, no matter what your budget is, you don't get the same benefit. There's a quality uh, in there, maybe. Th th there's a problem, though. I think in which that a lot of people who have a mechanistic mindset have suddenly stumbled onto... By the way, including myself. And let's be absolutely clear about this. So, OK, I'm an enormous enthusiast for direct marketing. I can never understand why people spent so much money on advertising and so little on direct marketing yes. when direct marketing was measurable. What I genuinely couldn't understand, what I still can't understand today, which is the strange behaviour of large companies, you go in and you say, this has got an ROI of five to one. And you go through all the maths and you can see that for every pound you spend, you are getting five back. Now, my father was a self-employed businessman. If you'd showed him anything with an ROI of five to one, he would have done a lot of it. And then you say, it's got an ROI of five to one, so I suggest we do some more of this. And they go, no, I've met my target or I've spent my budget for this year. Okay, so there's something really weird about about large corporate entities. GE, by the way, is not a weird exception where you don't have a budget, do you? You have a target. Yeah, and, I think and how you make that target is kind of up to you. If that means spending an enormous amount of money to make the necessary profits, that's your call. I think Expedia don't have um, a budget, but if, if they're running a programmatic campaign and you look like someone they can sell a holiday to, they'll spend the money to reach you. If you don't look like the right sort of person, they won't spend they'll the stop. money. But interestingly, they don't, you know, it, that, that's interesting because the problem with having too much of an efficiency mentality uh, is that so, so, um, there are some strange things I could never understand this that people when you could prove that direct marketing worked their appetite for doing more of it never seemed to increase very much which is a really strange yes. thing um, and what they do is they do the same thing next year and they try and print the letter on cheaper paper Okay. Instead of saying, let's do more of it, they go, let's try and make this even more cost effective by making the communication cheaper. And what would generally happen is by the third year, the paper was so shitty <laughs> that um, nobody replied. I mean, but uh, the, 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 the problem with the efficiency mindset is that, um, one, there are very large businesses which really depend on scale that actually the breadth of your customer base yeah. is... All, not every business. I accept that, OK? I accept that you would be kind of silly, indiscriminately targeting all of Rolls-Royce's advertising. You should indiscriminately target some of Rolls-Royce's advertising, by the way, but to, to spend all your money indiscriminately would be ridiculous. OK, I accept that. OK. Um, however, we've got to be careful because then we don't actually... We've made this decision about optimising the efficiency of uh, targeting. Weirdly, far less effort is put into optimising the efficiency of creative messages, which is a complete failure of the digital world in itself, which is that presumably it's much easier to establish a matrix for placement than it is a matrix for creative approaches. But my argument would be that actually creative experimentation probably pays off more. 
I think that you, it's my hot topic. Um, you see so few good online ads now. I used to collect bad ones, you know, but it's depressing. It's also Google, and Google have worked out that actually creative is up to 70% of the impact of their spend. Well, an interesting question is, did all those things for Brexit stroke Trump's election, did they work, really? The assumption is they worked because they used an extraordinary amount of data to target people to an incredible level of precision. It occurs to me that they may well have worked simply because they were testing lots of different creative messages and some of them were disproportionately powerful. I think so. so Boris Johnson is running 5,000 different ads on Facebook now, testing things out. So if it's an action, he's going to run 10 or 15 of those, you guess. So it's our ability to very quickly work out which ones are really worth backing and not from there. But it just comes down to your metrics, what you're measuring against. If it's clicks, are you getting the right results from getting someone to click on it from there? And also, of course, um, how... Now, very interestingly, you mentioned that GE gave you a, an extra bonus if you were selling new things. Yeah. Uh, which is a very, very sensible weighting. Uh, it's worth remembering that there's an ad that persuades someone to stay in the Hilton rather than the Marriott. And there's the ad that persuades someone to stay at the Hilton rather than staying with friends. Okay. Yes. Now, they both appear to be equally valuable to the Hilton group. But the second ad, by actually growing the market, is doing more work than the first. So, first of all, how, you know, how do you measure the efficacy of an ad? I can produce a very efficient ad by walking into a pub with a cardboard thing and a crayon and writing drink beer on the cardboard and sticking it up behind the bar. And I can point out that lots of people who are exposed to that message drink beer. But a large part of that is because they're already in a pub. Okay, they've come into the pub to drink beer. The sign may have some. I mean, it's probably, you know, the sign has some effect. But nonetheless, my claims that the sign is spectacularly effective aren't really true. So your book talks about the correlation between good words, ice cream sales and violence, missing out the fact that obviously the summer. The, 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 exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So my favorite example. So I spend too much time looking at Leeds United News on you know, websites. And there's a pop up that turns up. So when you get a pop-up, you go to you click on the right top right corner to close it down. But it doesn't have a cross there. It says click here to go to our visit our site. And on the left hand side, there's a cross. A cross. So great. So on click through, that's probably working really well. well. But nobody in the history of the world has ever clicked on ad by mistake. Like, While I'm here, I'll put a bet on Saturday's game. Yeah. Someone's working to the wrong metrics. And no, so often the and wrong also, metrics also of course, it's worth remembering that um, some element of the believability of an advertisement is conveyed by how much cost goes into it and also by how indiscriminately it's targeted. Yes. Because you can always pick off suckers and lie to them, OK? If you lie to a large crowd, someone's going to call you out. So messages that appear in a public space to a simultaneous indiscriminate audience may well evoke a sense of credibility in the viewer that is individually targeted ad, which might have cost 0.3p to deliver, okay, simply won't evoke. Because there's, A, there's costly signalling theory, which we need to look at, yeah. which is a concept that came out of biology, which is the fact that it's, the fact that somebody who was lying couldn't afford to do this, okay, it applies to flowers and yes. large petals. Yes. It applies to all... The, in other words, you know, a peacock that wasn't pretty fit couldn't carry this huge <laughs> tail on its back, OK? The fact that my advertising is, to some extent, a proof point, which is spending a lot of money up front promoting something only pays if you believe that something is going to be widely and repeatedly popular. 
In our, now, if you have a product where on the first use, now actually, very interesting case of that is Strand cigarettes, which I think your dad smoked. Does that so I was sent to the shop when I was about whatever to mm. buy some cigarettes, Strand cigarettes for my dad, and came back and said, they've stopped selling them. So I was like, what are you talking about? And no, no, honest, the co-op says they've stopped selling them and is investigating and stopped selling them. And like 25 years later, I found this story. Yeah. Nobody apart from my dad was buying Strand cigarettes because the line was... Um, you're never alone with a strand. You're never alone with a strand. Now, the interesting thing, I spoke to Jeremy Bullmore because he said, can you think of a case of advertising which has conspicuously failed? Now, by the way, I'm sure there are some cases, by yeah. the way, where you just, you know, you've got the tonality hopelessly wrong, something of that kind. But, and I said, well, you're never alone with a strand. Is the absolute textbook case of a failed advertising campaign. Now, hey, my dad thought it was brilliant advertising. There was a song... There was a kind of Sinatra lookalike. It was done by Ogilvy. So yes. I'm, I'm highly. It was actually Ogilvy's predecessor. I think it was um, probably Mather and Crowther who did it. Right. But I'm highly defensive because there was a guy who looked like Sinatra. There was a song which was actually released on a 45 single record, which went to number three. My dad always thought it was brilliant advertising. Okay, he thought, wow, that's a really impressive, you know, because at its time it was the kind yeah. of it was the kind of silk cut or Benson and Hedges of its day. It was really, really. Film noir, it looked very Film moody. noir, yeah. moody shot. And Jeremy says, no, 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 lots and lots of people bought it. They only bought it once because it was a disgusting cigarette. I think okay. it was Will's, was it? And there were claims that it was basically cobbled together from the, you know, the, the factory floor. <laughs> but apparently it was a very unpleasant tasting cigarette, so nobody bought it more than once. Now, interestingly, you see, it's a bad idea to do good advertising for a product that people only buy once. Yeah. Unless you're in a category where people only buy once because that's how often you buy. Pensions, uh, funeral plans. Be very wary about advertising there because they've only got to con you once. Okay, If you advertise shampoo and it makes your hair turn pink, well, of course, that may be a plus. <laughs> but if I bought some shampoo and made my yeah. hair turn pink, it would be an utterly foolish thing to do to advertise that shampoo because you will never recoup your costs because negative word of mouth and non-repeat purchase will basically destroy any chance your product have of, of recouping the upfront cost of promotion, okay? Whereas, uh, if you've got a good product, the consumer can reliably infer that the fact that you're investing upfront in the expectation of its widespread repeated popularity. As I said, we'll park things like funeral plans. Yes. We'll park things like pensions because they tend to be a one-off purchase. Uh, estate agents, of course, you know, by the time you discover the house is on a floodplain, it's a, <laughs> they've got their commission, you know. But in anything, by the way, this is very important in flowers because the reason you don't get much fake advertising in flowers, you do, orchids are quite yes. often fake advertisers, but orchids, the, the deception only works at the very beginning of the season, which may explain why orchids are rare. The bees get wise and they go, don't go back to that one. It's claiming to have nectar, but it's a liar. OK, but in most of the cases, it's only worth investing in petals if the bees visit you more than once. So the, it is biology and Darwinism that sort of you know, applies to it. Now, my contention is that if bees, which, you know, fascinating things though they are, you know, if bees can essentially work out this thing, it wouldn't be impossible that, to borrow Robin White's phrase, I think he uses the phrase, the reputation reflex, it wouldn't be impossible that humans have evolved something similar, which is the, the, because if you think about it, the ability to, to differentiate between someone who's lying and someone who is reliably telling the truth 
is of enormous value in evolutionary terms. And the fact that we might have evolved an instinct for credible communication, which partly actually factors in not only what the message is, but the cost of making it, or the effort entailed in making it. Uh, that doesn't strike me as remotely unlikely that humans have a kind of instinct around reputation, which is, what has this person got to lose if they're lying? Okay, that's a wrap, as I say. Um, really enjoyed talking with Rory. Um, we've covered another half hour in conversation in part two, so make sure you listen to that. Thank you very much.